Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the charming Craig, the glamorous Greg Gordon, and the fastidious Fabrice Bulakia. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Chris, Jared, and Lori. We've got a big topic, so we've got a full house to talk about it. Today we're going to talk about our thoughts on the recently announced playtest for one D&D and the initial character origins on Earth Arcana they released. Before we dive into that, though, let's ask our get-to-know-a-gnome question. Since we're talking about 5th edition's future, tell us about one of your favorite 5e characters. So, Chris, I'm going to start with you. Uh, so I don't actually get to play as a player character a lot, but I, I love NPC-heavy games. And years and years ago, which this is sort of relevant to today's, not today's topic, but to the, the, the recent release of Spelljammer, I, uh, I ran a game where it was eventually like a cross between Spelljammer and, and Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. So there was an NPC that was like a space hobgoblin, because if you put space in front of anything, it becomes instantly Spelljammer. That's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> His name was Tallian. He was a, uh, a prisoner on a prison ship that crashed onto the planet they were on. And the party made friends with him and one of the party hired him and one of the other characters became romantically interested in with them with him. So Tally was around for like ever like unbeknownst to me and he became a, a great fun character to play especially because that party um i leave a lot of like experimentation with my groups i was like all right what does everybody want to play and people are like i want to be this evil character and i want to be this sort of evil character i want to be this sort of good character and i want to be this kind of character i'm like oh this is going to be terrible <laughs> you know th- that that group ran till like level 13 and uh, the way that i did it was one i could use tally as sort of a go-between with some of the characters sometimes and two i just never gave them a chance to to uh to take a breath so like i love tally it was great great character well, allowed me to interact with the party a, a ton and dispelled the notion of the of the idea of the GMPC is a bad thing. That's awesome. What about you, Lori? My favorite character right now is under a spell of a demon named Penteska. They're hanging out in one of the hells somewhere. And Vera is a her name is Vera Snow, and she is a half elf, half human assassin thief. She has some wicked moves. I call her Stabby McStabstab. <laughs> I mean, she can like sneak up. I mean, totally passive aggressive, most passive aggressive character, and just like sneak up on 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 the monsters, and then just like crawl up on their back, and then just like stab, 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 stab. So I developed her during our pandemic game. It's called Stonewall. I've written about it before. So that's Vera. She's. I don't want to say my alter ego because she's a little too violent for my my taste in, in real life, but <laughs> it's fun to play. Jared, what about you? I would have to say my favorite fifth edition character that I've played is uh, Olorondon. Olorondon is a cleric bard, and he is a cleric of Cyric, which, if you know the Forgotten Realms, is not one of the better regarded deities. Um, Olorondon himself is actually not that bad a guy, but... He has spent his entire life lying, so he kind of figures that uh, Cyric is his best best bet if he's going to continue the life that he has led to this point. And Olorondon's shtick was that every every time he met somebody new, he would portray himself as a cleric of a different deity. <laughs> so Olorondon had just a box full of holy symbols for him to uh, swap out at various times. Oh, that's awesome. Some part of me wants to make a, a plea for Cyric being not that bad of a person, but he's a totally bad person. I got nothing. I got nothing to, to defend him. So what's a cleric bard like? 
you get to cast Dissonant Whispers, which is exactly why I took Bard. <laughs> like a careless whisper, like George Michael. <laughs> That's good. Yes, but I, I think there was less psychic damage from that. <laughs> what about you, Ange? Do you have a favorite uh, fifth edition character you play? Oh, yeah. My favorite fifth edition character is Dove my sorceress in my friend Tristan's uh, City of Cowles campaign. Uh, her actual given birth name is Isabel, Princess Isabella Vermullen. She's a runaway princess. Basically, I started the campaign with her as a sorcerer with the charlatan background instead of the noble background because she basically ran away from the magic school her family sent her to with a bard, ran off because she didn't want to marry this old guy her father wanted her to marry. And that's how we started the campaign. And Dove was basically all charisma, conning her way into whatever she needed, whenever she needed it. And then slowly as she like the campaign started and she got to know these players, it was like there's people in trouble that need help. And slowly the idea of responsibility and protecting the people began to like filter into her consciousness. And at this point, if Dove doesn't end up dethroning her father and taking over his kingdom at the end of this campaign, I'm not sure what I've been doing with this character because she's she's definitely grown from when we started to where she is now. But she's my absolute favorite, and I absolutely I absolutely love my little ice princess. Awesome! <laughs> it's like Robin Hood with a tiara. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did she take her tiara with her, and she like hawk it? Oh, no, 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 no. She has tried very hard to not be recognized as royalty, except when it was advantageous. At this point in the campaign, like, she tends to announce herself as Dove of Indus, but she will remind people that she is also a princess of the West March's kingdoms if it gets her what she needs to have gotten. So basically, she's kind of a glamper. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. So moving into our main topic... On August 18th, Wizards of the Coast announced the future of D&D with one D&D and the playtesting of new and revised material. They've released an unearthed arcana about the proposed changes to the way character origins are going to be handled. There's a lot of information here to unpack, so we thought we'd get together and talk about our thoughts on it. Now, as a caveat here, this is a bit of a hot topic. Uh, Changes to a game like D&D always arouse a bit of drama, so there's a lot of hot takes out there. We want to be honest with our opinions and concerns, but we also be nuanced and understand that this is just the first step on the way to a new, well, we can't call it a new edition, but a revision, the, f- the future of d and I'm going to start with asking Jared to get us rolling on this topic because he's he's done a little bit of research. I'm still recovering from doing like 7,000 plus words on my blog over the weekend. It was a long review. It was. I'm kind of excited about this. Part of why I'm excited about this is because when they first announced that um, there were going to be new books in 2024 and they had said that things were going to be backwards compatible, there were a lot of people grumbling and assuming that they they weren't necessarily really going to be backwards compatible. And I think what we have seen so far is showing what they mean by that. And it does look like you would still be able to play like your third party classes with this. You're going to be able to use your uh, old uh, adventures with this. The devil is more in the details than it is in any grand sweeping changes from what we've seen so far. 
but it looks like if things stay the way they are in this UA, I really don't think things are going to be drastically different. Let's be honest here and touch a little bit on the history of D&D, because in the 2000s, they initially released 3.0 in 2000. Mm -hmm. I think it was 2000. It might have been 99. Either way, but they released it at the beginning of the new millennium. And then out of the blue, without any warning to most people, they dropped 3.5 in 2003, which basically killed the business of a lot of third-party publishers. And while theoretically it was supposed to be backwards compatible, it wasn't really. So anyone who's been gaming for the last 20 years probably has a little bit of mistrust about them working on a new not edition and insisting it'll be backwards compatible. But I do think we have to acknowledge that there is a difference here. This, what they're doing now, is more in the vein of what they did with D&D Next, which is how they moved from 4th edition to 5th edition. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? I'm kind of in line with Jared about the, the revision idea. It is a revision. They've cleaned up a few things. They've, they've revised a few of the conditions. They codified the D20 test thing, which is now any 20 or any one is a, is a success or a failure, which is not actually how the game is written currently. Mm-hmm. They're tidying some stuff up based on the way that most of us play anyway, which is good. And I think it is the right move going forward. They're trying very hard. If you've watched any of their marketing materials, like there's a an hour-long video podcast. Oh, I forget who. It was Crawford with um their, their media guy whose name is slipping my mind right now. Uh, I, I forget what his name is, but yeah, he was asking him questions for like an hour and they were just talking about the design philosophy of what this one D&D is. And it falls into that. They're trying really hard to make people comfortable with the idea that this is not a new edition, that things will be backwards compatible and that it'll be you, your game is fine. Like it's not changing. I had a conversation with somebody recently. They can't call it a new edition. Like it would be shooting themselves in the foot to call it a new edition at this stage of the game. Because one, it would make people feel like anything they've already bought is now useless. It's going to make people not want to buy the products that are coming up between now and then, which are some really cool products. Maybe in the future, they'll call it 5.5. Maybe in the future, they'll call it 6.0. But right now they can't call it a new edition because it would just be shooting themselves in the foot. They're not changing much anyway. Like what they're doing is they've already changed a bunch of stuff with Tasha's and uh, Mordenkind's Tome of Foes. Mm-hmm. Those rules are different. Like the, the game is a different game because of those rules. This one D&D thing so far, if, if the things stay the same with the, the play test of what they're doing, which we probably won't, it'll, it'll change, is really just cleaning up some of the rules that are not clear. Now, Lori is, is primarily a player. What are your thoughts on this so far? This really was the first I've heard of it, even though I just got back from Gen Con. I was like, okay, cool. And I think that throughout the editions, because I've kind of played throughout the years, so I'm familiar with it, I think it just gets better and better and more, I think, more approachable for everyone. I'd like to do the playtest. They have playtesting now in D&D Beyond, which I'd like to do more than that before I have a, um, a really cool opinion on it. But also, too... I wonder what Ben Riggs thinks of it because I met him in the elevator. He wrote the book Slaying the Dragon, a history of Dungeons and Dragons. He mu- This must have been out before they announced this. So he's going to have to write another book about it. Oh, yeah. That, that's, that's one of the issues with anyone who does the history of role-playing games is like, 
we're not done yet. You, you can't stop yet. You, there's there's more to come. It's just really fascinating. I know there are some people who are real diehards with like, okay, it's got to be the first edition or no edition. And I'm more for character development anyway, and background and story and narrative because of my writing background. So I'm not really caught up in all the rules and the the lawyering about that. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping, I, I think it just seems like it's progressing towards the kind of more the narrative, like 5E is. Well, really the story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with Designers and Dragons, he at least wrote it in decades. And I think I read it in 2014, 2015, something around there. So it was like, okay, we've, we've got a few more years and then you need to get me my, my book on the 2010s. You can get the first few volumes in audiobook now. So that was nice. Oh, really? I hope they pick that up. That's oh, cool. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. Especially in audio. Do they have like uh, roaring like dragons in the background when they're do so many things with the audiobooks these days? Just the narrator in this case. But yeah. Can I touch on something really quick that, uh, that Lori mentioned? Lori mentioned that she's much more interested in character development. And I'm a big fan of um, marrying your mechanics to your narrative that you want to present. I mean, what's D&D? can make it whatever you want but the, the game is is focused pretty heavily on on the fight a good chunk of the rules are about that but the ex- exploration stuff and the uh interaction stuff is better these days i think than it's been in the past with the way that the rules are written mm-hmm. it's so elegant i want to say simple because it is simple it's like we're just going to make it a d20 for an ability check and here are your skills and your abilities and you can do whatever you want it's just are you good at it or not but the thing that change that I think is a great step towards marrying your mechanics to your narrative is that they took the so far the ability modifiers from race and put them in origins which is a huge yeah. move towards like hey mm-hmm. the way that I grew up not not my not my parents but the way that I grew up is the thing that influences a good chunk of what I am yeah. now which is a way yeah. better storytelling device that's a good point I do really like the way they seem to be beefing up backgrounds because I've loved backgrounds since they introduced them in 4E, but they tended to get a little sidelined once you started gameplay. It's like, yeah, 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 you got this background, and it might give you... Uh, Jared, you put it a really good way in your article about how it's like there were certain narrative permissions yeah. your background gave you, but they were very fuzzy. Yeah, they are. Uh, Whereas the background now can definitely like give more of an oomph to the character. I think my one concern about the new backgrounds is that because they're encouraging players to create their own backgrounds, how many people are just going to use them to do the stat dumps the way they want without putting any narrative thought into it? That's okay. That's a, that's a play style. I mean, if people want to play that way, I'm not going to be mad at them for it. Well, it's not a play style I want to play with, though. Yeah, sure. But I mean, there's plenty of people that play the way that we play, Ange, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I have an abundance of gamers. I see what you're saying, though, because they'll do that to kind of stack the stats and not have any weaknesses. So it's just too strong. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it, I guess that, that could be an issue. There's definitely a, a, like, you definitely want to give yourself a bonus. You want to give yourself advantage with the way your background is designed. But I also want to make sure the background actually has flavor to it, mm-hmm. that it makes sense. But we'll have to see how that one actually plays out once, you know, once more people are actually building characters with this rule set. Let me provide my counterpoint to that, if you don't mind. Sure. There are going to be players that just want to play the numbers game. 
and they can do that. But now if I'm going to play this game and I want my background to actually have a story thing matter to it, along with having some mechanical oomph, because I don't like to play characters that are that are uh, useless or weak, because I don't think that's necessarily fun, especially at the thing that they're supposed to be good at. I don't think min-maxing equals munchkinism. I think you can have just as much of a deep role-playing experience while min-maxing your character to have, especially if the mechanics provide you an actual uh, story-based fictional background piece to latch onto. Mm -hmm. And I think this does a way better job of that than previous, uh, than 5th edition did, like, so far. What are your thoughts on that, Jared? For one thing that was kind of interesting to me, um, I was listening to some other people discussing this, and they brought up the Acolyte background and say, for example, if you want to have a fighter with the Acolyte background, trying to justify that if you still want your strength and your constitution. Acolyte is a really good example because to, to use like the Forgotten Realms as, a, as an example, if your character was an Acolyte at a Temple of Tempest, you could totally have strength and constitution be your bonuses that you got from that. So, Absolutely. you know, there are still ways to you know, have your cake and eat it too. you know, create that narrative drive towards what you're going to want for your character and what you're playing. And just the fact you want to be an acolyte instead of a soldier and play a fighter is a role playing decision. Let me take that another step forward or like another version of that example. Say you're a cleric of Mistara and um, like you just never connected with the magic side of it, but enough that eventually you'll be an Eldritch Knight. So you play the fighter and then you eventually, you know, move into the Eldritch Knight thing and then you still have that accolade background and it all makes perfect sense from a narrative narrative point of view. Yeah, I, I do like I do like what they're doing with the backgrounds. There's a few fiddly bits like we'll have to see how they work out. Like I'm, I'm very curious about how feats are going to work. That's the biggest change. I'm curious about that because I know at one point, Chris, you weren't using feats in your game. I don't use feats in my games. I, I mean, if people want to, I let them, but I, I, I don't necessarily encourage it. And this feels like it's moving a little towards feats not being an optional rule. They're not anymore. <laughs> Your thoughts on that? It's fine. Uh, the, the Jeremy Crawford explained it the way that they want to design them in there. They are essentially class abilities that you can take that are not a part of your class. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Like if you want, if you want to customize your thing a little bit to have a, a bit of a different shtick than what is standard, that'll give you the, the way to, uh, to do that. There is a design philosophy that I've started getting on board with that I really like. Whereas like you have like this pick list from a class thing, but then you have some ways to optionally make your character something different from everybody else. And while there are the, the archetypes that we can pick mm -hmm. at this point, I think we could probably do better. Like D and D can probably do better with their design, which they're, I think they're trying and the feats are leveled now. So like you can't take every feat at first level, right? There's first level feats. There's like fifth level feats. That's, that's the design philosophy they're going with. I'm curious as to see how it works out. Yeah. I'm hoping there isn't a too broad uh, difference between different level Beats. And I also I don't think this is going to be like first, second, third, whatever. I think it's going to be like first, fourth, eighth, you know, along that track. Mm -hmm. And that's just that's just my assumption. But it's kind of based on some things that showed up in other Unearthed Arcana, like the first round of giant Unearthed Arcana had fourth and eighth level uh, feats in there. Well, I agree with you. I think that's the design philosophy they're going, the design structure they're going with. Yeah, it'll be, I, I don't think we'll fully understand how they're going to be handling feats until we get the unearthed arcana for classes. Next month, next month. <laughs> that's yeah. what's tricky though. Is this was tantalizing enough to give you some idea, but it, it also 
especially with like the rules glossary changes makes you wonder, okay, how is this going to fit in with these other things at this point? I want to move on to a hot button topic. (laughs) Let's talk critical hits. (sighs) I I appreciate what they're doing. It doesn't mean I agree with everything that they did in this. They're probably going to take that away, aren't they, from my understanding? Uh, so the way the way the rules are structured in the Unearthed Arcana is that, as Chris said earlier, a D20 roll is a one is always a failure, a 20 is always a success, regardless of what that D20 roll is for. Mm-hmm. Critical hits are now a thing that only apply to weapon damage and unarmed attack damage. So it is basically, if you roll a 20 on an attack roll, you only roll the damage die twice. So that means no more critical hits on spells, no more critical hits on sneak attack, no more critical hits on smites. Ooh. (laughs) I don't think I like that. That one's getting changed. As a rogue player, I'm like, you can't take away my, my critical hit damage on sneak attack dice. Do you know the type of energy that that gives a table? That gives a player my my gut instinct is I think this is the that is one of the 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 rules that's probably not going to stay as is because yeah I don't know anybody who likes it yes. I haven't heard any 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 hot takes any YouTube videos any Twitter <laughs> accounts nobody has said no no this is fine this is fine Do you know how many t-shirts would be wrong how much swag would be wrong if they changed that. I mean, a lot of advertising is based on that, the critical miss and critical hit. That's like a big thing of D&D culture, in my opinion. It is. This is getting changed. This is going to get changed. There's no way this stays. But the the, the thing that the thing that's in here that people, and, and Crawford said it, but I'm going to parrot it, and I, I've noticed it before too, is that monsters don't crit anymore. Yeah. This is a player character. Uh, benefit. Yeah, benefit. So... I actually don't have a problem with that, honestly. I I have to see what they're planning on doing with some monsters because, I don't know, it takes a little bit of the excitement out for some monsters. For some monsters that are, you know, rolling a D4 for their attack, it doesn't really matter a whole lot one way or the other, but I don't know. I... I I am more interested in seeing monsters get cool abilities on their stat block that they can use once or twice a fight that the game master can then utilize when they want to. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with monsters no longer having crits because I'll be honest, as a GM, especially since I haven't run a high level 5e campaign yet, I tend to fudge those things. I mean, I know that's sacrilege to say, but when I was running for my teens, I they they would have been they would have died in their first session if I had done criticals as rules as written. So I don't have a problem with them taking it away from monsters, but I also understand what Jared and some other folks have said that it kind of if they don't do anything else to adjust the monsters, that kind of takes a little bit of the fun away, you know, that little spontaneity away from the GM side of things. Gotta have a, like a little bit of fear that they might not make it through the round. What I would like to see back, if we're going to go down this road, is I miss the, uh, once the monster is bloodied, they get reaction to do a thing. Bring back bloody. Yes. 
you know, because in fourth edition, you could not kill a dragon without it getting its breath weapon off, because once you made it bloodied, it at least got its breath weapon off. It is it is something that should be back in the game. Yeah, absolutely. My group has been uh, using the term bloodied. I, I mean, it was one of the best things in fourth edition. It was so indicative of what the, the fight, what was happening in the fight and, you know, what status the monster was at. You can tell your players it's definitely bloodied. Oh, OK, we've got it down halfway. We can do this, guys. I never stopped using bloodied abilities in my games. I've been using them all along. I was going to say, Ange, Ange can probably attest to this. There's been, I, I still use that as a measure of how far down something is. Yeah, we, we, we weren't using any additional abilities for the monsters, but we definitely use the terminology. Oh, I am. I'm sticking, I stick it right in the stat blocks now when I make my own characters. When I make my own stuff, it's great. It's, a, it's, it's, the best me- it's one of the best mechanics 4th edition had. Yeah, and I, 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 they are already moving towards not, I mean, they did this from the beginning in 5th edition, but even more so now, they do not build NPCs and monsters the same way that PCs work. You know, we are, we, we've already seen that even with spellcasters, that's becoming more and more of a thing. So yes, give me something that will let me do something nasty at bloody or something of that nature. In that case, I can see the taking the crits away, but please, please. Can I have the critical damage for my, my, <laughs> my, my firebolt or my sneak attack or my smite, please. And the reason I wanted to phrase it the way I did when I was talking about this online is me as a DM, I don't want that to go away from players because everyone is so excited. I don't care if that ended up, you know, killing the monster that I'm running that round. It's so it's such a a big boost of energy when somebody does get that massive sneak attack to to just, you know, run riot on the thing in one shot that I don't want that to go away. You know, I want my players to have that. This is talking Pathfinder, which is a different numbers game, but one of the most memorable encounters from one of the games I have run is when my gun, my gunslinger in the game basically one shot at a clay golem, not my character, my friend's character, but I was the GM. They had one character run in, hit it once, another character run in, hit it once, and then the gunslinger went, he rolled a critical, he rolled 70 points of damage, and they one-shotted a clay golem. And like the players still talk about this as if it happened yesterday. I don't wanna I don't wanna take that I don't wanna take that that absolute joy away from players when they get that really good hit. And especially when players use kind of like their characters to kind of get through things, get through big things in real life. And you can kind of safely play your characters in gaming and yeah, to have those triumphs like, okay, I can do this. My character can do this. I can succeed in life. I mean, I I think it's becoming so much more character. It kind of goes back to the character and the narrative and the story. One of the other big changes that they've done that hasn't gotten as much buzz around it is the the clarification of arcane versus divine versus primal as far as the spells go and i think that one's pretty interesting chris what are your thoughts on that i think that it is a much easier change for the game and i approve of what they're doing like just give me three sets of spell lists make it primal arcane or divine let's go it's it's almost a throwback to what fourth edition did when they had the extra one of marshall in there but I mean, people don't like fourth edition, so we don't have to talk about that. I like fourth edition a lot. Uh, I'm a big fan. 
Um, <laughs> and not because it's a tactical war game. Cause I thought it was way, cause I, cause the skill system was the, the skill check system was poorly presented and had great potential to be exceptional because it was drawing on what people consider indie game development at the time. Anyways, uh, I think it's great. I think they should use those three spell lists. I think we should see how that plays out and then let people vote on it because that's what they're going to do. Yeah. What about you, Jaren? Um, I like it with the caveat that I really want to see what they do to present individual classes because at this point, bards have the arcane spell list and I don't think anyone wants to see bards go back to second edition when they couldn't heal. So it'll be interesting to see how they, you know, how they say this class gets that spell list plus these, you know, I, I'm interested to see how they're going to do that because I'm almost certain that's going to be a thing. There's also a lot of subclasses that allow crossover between those different types of spells. I mean, we'll see what they do when we get the next month, when we get the classes on Earth Arcana. I do think it's, it's so much simpler, though, for something like, for example, the initiate feats. Instead of saying, you know, having an initiate feat for every class that has its own spell list, mm-hmm. there's just an initiate feat and you pick one of those three spell lists and... That has to make the the designers like breathe a little bit easier. The potential that they're not going to have to waste that many words, you know, repeating something for each individual spell list that exists in the game. Yeah. Make it easier to introduce new classes too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been talking for a little while now, so we should probably start wrapping up. Any last thoughts from folks? Chris, I'll go to you first. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, are, we, are we not going to talk about the digital tool set that they that they presented in, in like a super alpha version? I mean, we, we could probably talk for a couple of hours. But go ahead. Tell us, tell us about the tool set. I mean, it's super pre-alpha. It's using the Unreal Engine 5, I would assume, um, because they said they're using Unreal Engine, I assume it's 5. They want to present this sort of top-down, tilted camera miniatures table where the idea is, say you buy an adventure book, because now, because they own D&D Beyond, your digital and your physical products are going to be bundled. Dragonlance will be the first one, I think, that does that. Also, we get Planescape next year, which I'm very excited about. It better be better than the Spelljammer books, which I I think the Spelljammer books are okay, but that adventure is garbage. I will go on record saying that. I do not like it. (laughs) Anyways, um, for a variety of reasons, which we could talk about in the future, that tool set with the integration with D&D Beyond and the things that they can do, I am exceptionally excited about that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love me some Roll20. I've been using it forever. But if you buy a book and you get the Lego blocks that they're essentially saying that you get to build 3D sets from the books, that would be an amazing feat for them and a big steal because people would just flock to that thing because it's like Tailspire, but potentially better. If you don't know what Tailspire is, it's, it's a pretty cool digital table. My concern is it's going to take some computer power. And I, I personally have one player in my group who, during the summer, he's often at camp when we game. There are certain virtual tabletops his system can't handle. So, like, his system will have trouble running Zoom and the virtual tabletop at the same time, depending upon how many lighting features or whatever that virtual tabletop has. So... I'm curious about what they're planning, but also hesitant because I don't want to gatekeep this away from people who may not have the most robust system, if that makes any sense. I mean, I don't think Roll20 is going anywhere. No, no. But at the same time, there are concerns about how Wizards is going to handle things in the future in relation to other virtual tabletops. They've already stopped granting licenses to newer virtual tabletops. 
Um, and I'm not sure if any new stuff is going to roll 20. Well, I think they've already said their contract that they have is still for a few more years. But when that contract is, and they've also said that nothing will go away at the end of their contract with Wizards, so you won't lose anything that you've already had. But it's a question of whether we're going to see the 2024 you know, rules with an official implementation on Roll20. That's where there's a little bit more of a question mark. I'm super curious about this tool set that they're working on. But at the same time, I don't want them to be relying on the high graphics that's going to require a lot more bandwidth Mm -hmm. from people that may not actually have it. It would be nice if they had like that and a low res version Mm -hmm. that was a more bare bones, you know, map and traditional VTT map and minis type of thing. But we shall see. Because that one is still a ways off in the future. <laughs> and and the prices of video cards all dropped into the toilet again, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> I know for a while I was thinking of upgrading my computer and I'm like, nope, not this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point about the digital divide, too, because you want to make it accessible to everyone. My final thought is just I think we failed to touch on this when we were talking about the uh, D20 rolls. But there's a big shift in inspiration, and I'm very curious to see if that makes inspiration more useful or, or basically used in a game session. That's probably one of the things that I am most likely to see if people want to try out, because as much as I love tracking role playing and keeping an eye on all of the stuff that people are doing based on their uh, their traits and their bonds and their flaws. It is really hard for a GM to jump up and say, yeah, that is exactly what that flaw is about. So here's a, uh, you know, here have some inspiration. And I think this could be really interesting having those built-in mechanical triggers. Oh, yeah. Inspiration points. Yeah. Inspiration is is one of those things that it's a really good idea, but because it is it's not something that's easy for the GM to remember to give out. Yeah. No, make sure it's equitable. Yeah. It's not like it's Savage Worlds where it's like, if you're not giving out bennies, your players are screwed. Mm-hmm. I also really, really want them to change. Like, let's let's make the rules for inspiration what people are actually doing. Yes. Because everyone treats it as a rule. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. Given the number of things that Jeremy Crawford brought up, that they're looking at redesigning because people don't use them the way they're written in the book. I'm kind of interested to see, you know, why didn't they change inspiration right off the bat? Because that is definitely something that I have run into that people do not play the way it is in the book. No, I know nobody, nobody that plays it rules as written where to have to declare you're using it to have advantage on the role. Nobody does it that way. Everyone's like, oh, crap, I missed. Can I use my inspiration? And then they roll another die. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess technically it's kind of, the, but no, let's just call it a, re, let's call it what it is. Let's call it a re-roll. Yeah. You know what the, you know what they should change the rule to? They should change it to after you roll, you can spend your inspiration to roll another D20 that has nothing to do with advantage or disadvantage. Mm, that's a good thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, that's the way that I run it. And that's the way that it should be run. Mm-hmm. I think because it, it solves the idea of like, do you get to re-roll if you have advantage then? Because that's broken. And re-rolling with disadvantage just feels yeah. bad. Yeah. With re-rolling, do you like... I know some people in my gaming group 
use the actual D&D Beyond to like roll the dice, but I really prefer to just roll the old fashioned dice. Yeah, I roll old fashioned dice. It depends yeah. on where I'm at. If I'm if if I'm sitting here in my computer chair on the computer, I use whatever the VTT has that we're using. Mm-hmm. In person, yeah, I like rolling the physical dice. I like I like my 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 shiny goblin math rocks. I'm proud of my dice bag. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love my dragon bag. I have a dragon bag. Oh, that's, that's awesome! Great. What color? It's purple and black. <laughs> oh, nice. Cool. So now that we have veered off topic, uh, let's, let's wrap this up. No, it's perfectly all right. We've been talking for a while. And while I think Chris would yell at me for going long, we still want to keep this a relatively short <laughs> podcast. Relatively. I'm not yelling at you for another 10 minutes. And I started recording early, so you got even longer. <laughs> So this show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can be a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the addition iteration. From the past, present, and future, pull all the rules into one place. Want to use Thacko with advantage? Well, we've got the confusion for you right here. You just hurt my head. <laughs> <laughs> if you're enjoying the Gnome Cash, you'll probably like many of the other misdirected Mark shows. Here's another one to check out. Mastering Dungeons. RPG veterans and game designers Teos Abadia and Sean Merwin look at the game and the hobby of D&D from a variety of viewpoints, reporting the news, understanding the business, reviewing the products, and illuminating the design. Whether you're a fan, a player, a DM, or a designer, Sean and Teos cover topics of interest to you. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, anything else you want to give a shout out to? Jared, go. Just because there's been so much big D&D news, I don't want this to get to uh, get buried. But yes, um, you should still check out the Twilight Accord Patreon, which is helping Green Ronin publish a queer-centered uh, D&D setting. The setting is basically people being called to reclaim the first city in all of existence. And not only is that a neat setting and something that I would love to see get developed, but also the more I've been reading the uh, Radiant City- Citadel uh, adventure anthology, that would tie in as one of the uh, founding cultures really, really well. Yeah, Twilight, of course, super cool. Uh, Lori, do you have anything you want to give a shout out to? Uh, yeah, I'd like to give out a shout to actually La- Indiana Library Federation. I gave a presentation this morning on writing. And so their website is ilfonline.org. Nice. Uh, Chris, what about you? You want to give a shout out to anything? Yes, yes. There is a YouTube channel called Comics Explained. Uh, Rob explains comics with wonderful graphics of the comics themselves in a very entertaining and illuminating way. I love Rob. Um, You can get full stories from him that talk about things like Secret Wars or like the like Kang's background and anything you really want to know about uh, about, you know, comic books. There's a lot of DC stuff in there, too, if if you're if that's your your uh, jam. So yeah, Comics Explained. It's a great YouTube channel. It doesn't really need any help. He's got like 2.8 million subscribers or something silly. But if you want to be entertained, it's worth it. It's very entertaining. Awesome. And I'm going to give a shout out to uh, the YouTube channel Roll for Initiative. I'm always on the lookout for YouTube channels talking about gaming, um, especially ones that are hosted by women or people of color. Uh, And this one is actually hosted by a couple. I'm not sure if they're married, but they definitely have a cute baby. Um, either way, I've enjoyed their content so far, so I thought I'd give them a shout out. It's Roll Four, the number four initiative, uh, and we'll have a link in the show notes. So, 
Do you guys think we avoided the stew this week? Can we are, can we make aren't another? you in charge? <laughs> yeah, Don't you let us know that? I Don't you throw the clones in the stew? Closing, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Did I destroy your closing? I'm sorry, Ange. I guess I'm getting thrown in the stew. <laughs> help me, help me. No, no.